Welcome to the Unabridged Podcast. I'm Ashley. And this is Jen. Join us for bookish episodes and check out our website, unabridgedpod.com, where you can find lots of new bookish content to grow your TBR. Sign up for our newsletter to find out more about online book discussions and upcoming events. Find us on Patreon for extra unabridged content. Join us on Instagram and Facebook at Unabridged Pod and message us there or see our website to get plugged into the Unabridged community. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hey everyone and welcome to Unabridged. Today is our book club episode for September. We are talking about Julia Alvarez's In the Time of the Butterflies. Before I get started, just want to remind everyone that we have a lot going on over on Patreon every month. If you want a little more unabridged content, you can get an extra episode talking about, we we do a lot of um, adaptations over there, but we have a, a variety of topics. But yeah, it's just a way to get a little more of a glimpse into what we're reading personally. Sometimes we're a little franker with our opinions over there than we may be on this main feed. And yeah, it's really fun. So if you're interested in supporting us, you can go to patreon.com slash unabridged pod. All right. To start off today, we're going to do our bookish check-in. Ashley, what are you reading? One of the books I'm reading right now is Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead. Oh my gosh. Yay. Amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm probably only like maybe 20% in, and I am listening to this one. I'm listening to the audio. Thanks to Libro FM. I've always read Kingsolver's work otherwise. So this is a new audio experience for an author that I have read and loved before. And the audio is phenomenal. I really love the voice actor. The narrator is Charlie Thurston. He's a new narrator to me, but is really phenomenal. And this one is set in rural Appalachia. And Jen did read this a while ago. I remember you touched on it in a bookish check I think right? so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it has gotten a lot of acclaim. It won the pull. It was one of the books to win the Pulitzer Prize for 2023. And so I was like, I have got to read this. I love King Solver and I just haven't done it. So um, it is a little intimidating. It is a long book. And so that was part of it. And I haven't read David Copperfield. So I also felt like I didn't know the source material. And then finally, I had to be like, Ashley, you are not going to read David Copperfield right now. So just accept your, <laughs> accept your fate and enjoy this phenomenal book. So that's where I am. And it is focused on Demon, who that is his nickname, Demon Copperhead. And the reason, you know, he has this nickname. Everybody in their community has a nickname. All of them are kind of equally problematic slash derogatory. And so he carries that one and he's like, oh, it could be worse, basically. Like his best friend's nickname is Maggot. So, you know, he's definitely in a community that is connected in part by their interior nature. So like the nicknames are an example of that. And it's a very insular community and they are very leery of outsiders. And his home life is very complicated. He ha- his mom is, she's an addict. She's always in and out of a lot of different things. And he takes care of her. He loves her. And they do have a tender relationship. And so there are some things about it that are really beautiful. But it also is, it's painful for the reader. I I would say like you love him quickly. At least that's how I feel in the beginning is like, I love him. He is so full of life. He's so smart. And 
his circumstances are just heartbreaking. And his mom gets involved with a man who is awful. And that just makes what was already kind of a hard situation, but sort of a like, you know, scraping by, they don't have much money. There's a lot of instability because of her instability. But all in all, you know, he felt like his life was okay. And then Stoner comes in, this man, and all of a sudden things that had once been stable are really unstable for him and scary. And Stoner wants to be in control of everything that's going on and all the situation. You know, he wants to control everything. And so tensions rise and things get harder and harder. And one of the problems is that Demon's best friend, Maggot, Stoner decides that he can't have anything to do with him anymore. And it's because Maggot's effeminate. And so, you know, they've always been friends since they were tiny children. But Stoner's making these sweeping generalizations. He is, you know, applying his prejudice toward the situation. He's basically saying you cannot have anything to do with him anymore. Well, that's his best friend in the whole world Mm -hmm. and also his neighbor. So then, like, that feels impossible. And so that's happening. The situation escalates. Ultimately, I don't want to give spoilers, so I'll just say that ultimately, pretty quickly in the book, Demon winds up in foster care. And then he has to readjust to everything in this life, you know, in a foster situation um, with a widower on a farm who has several boys staying there and who has them as laborers, basically. And so then Demon's got to try to navigate that situation and find his place in like a really complicated pecking order amid these kids who've had really hard lives. And so that's kind of where I am in the story is with all of that going on and his mom is in rehab. And so there's like this, you know, feeling that maybe he'll get back home, but then she is still, she's married to Stoner, this guy, and all of that stuff is really bad. So, you know, it just shows, I mean, you're you're seeing a glimpse into how complicated those problems are and how there's not easy answers and that while, yes, his home life is really problematic, the foster system is also really problematic in this scenario. And so, you know, I think you really are just getting a glimpse into what all that looks like in rural America. And so, yeah, I am absolutely swept up in the story. Again, he's just a phenomenal narrator. And so, you know, King Solver really captures his voice and he is vivid. I mean, that's what I've heard of David Copperfield also. Again, I haven't read it, but you know, that's kind of the thing is like just this really iconic voice of telling this really, really complicated story. So again, that's Barbara King Solver's Demon Copperhead. I'm so excited that you're reading that. I loved it so much. And it's so long, but I feel like I could read it again right now. It's just so rich. And yeah, you're right. Audio is really such a great format for that one because because the narrator is strong, you get that full sense of voice. He does a great job. Yeah. And hard, but also, I mean, I think like his circumstances are really hard, but again, he is just full of life. He's very hopeful. Um, And so like his, even though your heart is breaking to a certain extent for his circumstances. His heart is not yeah. breaking. He's just in it and when it's telling funny, you how it is. Right? I mean, there's And so it's funny. funny That's right. Things. It's laugh out yeah. loud funny mm-hmm. a lot of times. And so, yeah, I mean, he just has a great sense of humor. 
And yeah, you really are getting that like perspective of how he's getting through mm-hmm. this hard circumstance. Mm-hmm. So what about you, Jen? What are you reading? So I am reading Colson Whitehead's John Henry Days. I am still very early in the book. Um, this is one of my 23 backlist books I picked for this year. And I also have this loose goal of reading all of Colson Whitehead's books because he actually doesn't. For such a prominent author, he doesn't have that many. It's very doable. This is his second novel and or his second book. And so far, I'm loving it, though it did take me a little bit because he is doing a lot of experimental things with style and with voice. It took me a little bit to get my footing. It is bridging. So John Henry himself does appear in the book. I'm about maybe a quarter of the way in, and he has just appeared in the first section. It moves back and forth between multiple perspectives. So the one that we keep returning to is Jay Sutton, who is a black journalist who is trying to set a new record for the number of sequential junkets he has been a part of. And this was published in the early days of the internet, which is funny. So he is writing for websites and online journalism is still just the beginnings of a thing. And so it's definitely commenting on the sort of the fact that he's publishing, but people aren't really respecting that as real publishing. That mm. That's a part mm-hmm. of it, too. So he's going to be this record holder. I'm using air quotes here. This record <laughs> holder of this thing that is this dubious honor. The very first chapter, it starts with this request from a newspaper for people who know the true story of John Henry. And then it's these fragments from different people who have written in who are saying, oh, he was in West Virginia. Oh, he was in the state. Oh, he died because he was battling the the drill. Oh, he, he died because he had cancer. Oh, he died in a mine cave-in. I, I just realized that I, I'm assuming everyone knows who John Henry is, but maybe they don't. So I should just say John Henry is this This figure who was a black man who was known for his incredible strength, who worked on the railroad, and he was known as someone who was incredibly productive in pounding in railroad stakes in in the ties that hold the track down. And it was right at the moment that industrialization was happening. And so people brought in this drill, and there was supposedly this competition between John Henry and the drill, and he won. But then in the song, which... I will say we sang in my elementary school in the song, it causes an aneurysm and he dies. So he wins, but he dies in the attempt. So the song is part of the book as well. And and sort of the premise of the modern day part of it is that the U.S. Postal Service has put out these sort of legendary stamps about different figures. So there's one for Paul Bunyan. There's one for Pecos Bill. There's one for John Casey. And then there's one for John Henry. And this little town in West Virginia is using, where John Henry supposedly lived, is using the release of this stamp as a way to bring tourism to their town. And so that's where the junket that Jay Sutton is attending is happening. I will just say I do not have high hopes that this is going to bring a tourist boom to this little town. But anyway, we'll see what happens. (laughs) So if you've read Whitehead before, you know that he is both a great storyteller and... 
he challenges himself constantly to bridge different genres. So he has a great zombie book. He has some historical fiction. He has magical realism. And this one is sort of encompassing all of those in one, which is fascinating. So we get the historical part with John Henry himself. We get this sort of satirical part with Jay Sutton. We get the Postal Service employees talking about why they're releasing this. There's a part that's written as a script. Yeah, so it's really interesting to see the way he's playing with language, playing with story, playing with the nature of truth, talking about the modern condition while also looking at this historical figure and why you would choose this historical figure to highlight. It's great so far. I, I don't have any formal thoughts about it because I am so early in the book. But yeah, it's really, I mean, it's Whitehead. I feel like At this point, I just have accepted that I'm along for the ride and I'm going to end up loving whatever he does. And I just am kind of waiting, waiting to see what happens. Yeah. So that is Colson Whitehead's John Henry days. Wow. That sounds like it would be really interesting and maybe a good place to start for Whitehead. I I still haven't read uh, Nickel Boys is the one I was planning to read first. And I haven't read that yet, but yeah, I really want to dig into his work, but this one sounds great. That's a good one. Just, it's, it's probably the shortest. It's the shortest I've read so far and it is, it's tight. Like it's, yeah, mm. I think that would be a great place to start. Sorry. I'm like debating that or Underground Railroad, but I think, I think Nickel mm-hmm. Boys would be the one I would recommend. Anyway, that's fun. All right. Well, we are going to shift over now to our main discussion, which again is about Julia Alvarez's In the Time of the Butterflies. I'm going to read the publisher's synopsis. I tried to write this myself, and I will just say it was very challenging. So I went with the publisher. It is November 25th, 1960, and three beautiful sisters have been found near their wrecked Jeep at the bottom of a 150-foot cliff on the north coast of the Dominican Republic. The official state newspaper reports their death as accidental. It does not mention that a fourth sister lives, nor does it explain that the sisters were among the leading opponents of General Rafael Leonidas Trujillo's dictatorship. It doesn't have to. Everybody knows of the butterflies. In this extraordinary novel, the voices of all four sisters, Minerva, Patria, Maria Teresa, and the survivor, Dede, speak across the decades to tell their own stories, from secret crushes to gun running, and to describe the everyday horrors of life under Trujillo's rule. Through the art and magic of Julia Alvarez's imagination, the martyred butterflies live again in this novel of courage and love and the human costs of political oppression. All right. Ashley, what are your overall impressions? So this is a book that I, this is one of the few times that I have read this one multiple times. I have not revisited it in quite a few years, but I taught this in AP Lit. So I had read it and I loved it. I made it part of the curriculum. And I think that when I first read it, I mean, I still think it's a phenomenal book, but I think that one of the reasons I really found it so deeply impactful on my first reading is that it brought to life something that I knew virtually nothing about that, of course, is a huge part of history. And I I just, I didn't know much of anything about Trujillo when I read this the first time, which again, I mean, I, I mean, I don't even know when I first read it, to mm-hmm. be honest, but it has been a long time. Maybe it was in college. It was certainly around then. And I was just like, oh my goodness. I knew nothing about the atrocities. I really didn't know. At that point, I really had not read a lot about, I hadn't seen the common threads among dictators throughout history. 
and how often things like like this, the accidental deaths that are not accidental, that everyone knows, pe- just the disappearance of mm-hmm. people, like, you know, that has happened, unfortunately, in a lot of places over a lot of periods of time. But at that point, when I first read this book, it was just one of the first times that I really saw the grisly reality of dictatorships on a, you know, essentially on a personal level. So Alvarez in the beginning says that this is a fictionalized version of these sisters, that they were real people exactly like Jen read in the synopsis. They did die in this accident that was not an accident. And they did, they were part of the revolution. However, she is imagining, you know, a lot about what they're like based on her research. And so I thought what is so powerful to me is the capturing of what it looks like, what it re- what revolution looks like, that it's not all grandiose ideas and gestures and performances, but instead is a constant struggle and that not all people who participate are Like they didn't wake up one day and think I want to be part of a revolution. I think that this the book really captures that when you see the different sisters and Minerva is certainly always the most interested in revolution and bringing about change and you know that her personality is the most like that. But we see with Patria and Mate and even with Dede, like we see and we get with her, we really see like what happens if everybody you love is involved and. Um, you know, what does that look like if you don't want to be involved or like in her situation with Jaimito, like if you feel like you can't be involved, then like, what does that mean? And so we see how each of them grapple with the situation that they are in, which of course they did not choose to be in. But when you are born into a country, I mean, you know, I mean, it just shows how time and place have such a profound impact on our lives. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of their concerns are the concerns that are, you know, global. <laughs> like, they're just, like, part of daily life of, you know, the like like it says in the summary, like, there's the little the love and the, you know, love interest and the petty grievances and, like, the, the frustrations with each other and all of that is part of the story. And I think I found that really powerful because it showed a broader picture of what it looks like to be amid these really major historical events that kind of get flattened Mm -hmm. on the page. I think here we see it in a much more complex way. And I thought that was really powerful. What about you, Jen? What was your overall impression? I should just say ditto. No. Um, (laughs) It is hard, like with this one, both. Yeah, it's hard both because it is a sweeping story. And also, like, I've read it more than once. Mm -hmm. So anyway. Yeah, this was my second time reading it. I was telling Ashley before we started, I don't know when I read it first, but it was pre Goodreads, which means it may have been in my Caribbean Lit class. I know we read something by Alvarez. I can't remember if it was this or if because I love that so much, I went and read this on my own. But it was probably when I was in grad school that I first read this or shortly thereafter, since it was pretty Goodreads. And I've been on Goodreads for a long time. But yeah, and I remembered parts of it came back to me as I was reading, but going in, I remembered only the barest outline. So in, in some ways, it was like our first reading. I really loved it. It is heavy. And I, yeah, I feel like going in, 
readers should know, and I'm assuming everyone who's listening has read it. But yeah, I think you need to know that it is heavy, as the topic would suggest. And yet there's a lightness to the sisters and their relationship. So I think Alvarez does this. It is a really fine balance between portraying the heaviness, but also making us love these women because it what happened to them is only a tragedy if you love them first. So I think we can recognize, oh, yes, women dying at the hands of a dictator is a tragedy, but she makes you feel that because she does such a good job of creating these unique characters who seem like real people. And I think that's the real value of historical fiction like this. And that's one thing that I really love is when you highlight individuals who then illuminate the true tragedy of what happened and of what was lost. And, you know, maybe that's a tragedy because of what they represent, but it's also a tragedy because of the people they leave behind and the real losses that happened in their lives. So yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful book. It's a classic for a reason. Shout out to our Unabridged Podcast Reading Challenge. This one definitely works for a classic by a BIPOC author. It, it holds up. And in some ways, I think it resonated with me more this time. I'm not sure I was completely in the headspace to recognize just how resonant this might still be reading it this time. So yeah, I mean, overall impressions, absolutely. I loved it. I love that point, Jen, that like, we only feel it as a real tragedy if we love them. And I think something that was really striking to me this time that I just could not get over is like, again, I've read it several times. I couldn't get over how strongly I wanted the ending to be different. And that whole last part is just such a, it's just so well told. I mean, it's such a strong storytelling moment. So I think a lot of the book is, you know, has all these different things that we can talk about that are amazing. But what struck me in the end with the last part of the book is just, and I mean, I found it absolutely heart-wrenching to read, but it was like how they're just, I mean, they're just young women trying to visit their husbands in prison who are in prison for, you know, wrongly because of this crazy government situation. The simplicity of that was part of what made it so powerful. And then like buying the po- the purses and, you know, they don't want to spend the money, but then they're like, oh, we're just going to treat ourselves this way. I mean, I felt like Alvarez's storytelling there was just outstanding. Mm-hmm. And the whole time you're thinking, please don't let this thing happen. But the thing happened because these are real people and that really happened. And you know that there's no way that there's a different outcome because it is part of our history that we have to reckon with. And I think that was just really masterfully done to me, like, that all of a sudden, these people that again, get flattened on the page, like they get flattened on the page as simple, you know, parts of this larger story. But in that telling, each of them is a profound loss. And you're just wanting them to spend the night. You're just wanting, you know, I mean, all of that. And so I felt like that was really amazing to me because it had the feeling of something like a thriller. Mm-hmm. But you know, and you've been with them leading up to that moment, that it's not at all that. It's historical fiction that is showing what could have been exactly how those last moments were. And I think that was just really well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Mm. Uh, Yeah. And it's so, I mean, again, let's just shout out Alvarez, right? It is so masterful when you can start a book with a tragedy. We know the it's looming over the entirety of the novel. 
And yet you do have those moments of hope, <laughs> hope yes. against hope that maybe right. she's going to let them live, even though that is not historical, which of course she can't. Right. I mean, that's not the point, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. These categories always bleed into each other, but yeah. What <laughs> is one thing, Ashley, that worked for you? I think that something I found really powerful this time was watching as the girls learn about the reality of Trujillo and how contrasted that is with what they believed to be true. And I think part of why I found that so impactful this time was just like Minerva, you know, because I've read it several times before, what I remember of her character and what I I believe was true in history is that she did have a strong sense of morality. She she wanted to fight against Trujillo. I mean, I think that, you know, she was the primary of the sisters, historically, who took a stand against the dictatorship. But we see her as a vulnerable child when Sunita first tells her these things that she cannot believe to be true. I think that was really powerful to me because that is how these things happen, is exactly that, that we believe to be true, and then intentionally or unintentionally, and sometimes both, pass that on to our children, Mm -hmm. and then cover over these, like, horrific realities, and by doing it, let the horrible realities continue to exist. So I felt like all of that, just the insidious nature of patriotism, Mm -hmm. and how by promoting one narrative... And silencing another, something like this can go on for such a long time. I felt like that was really powerful to me this time. And just seeing Minerva, who, again, I have this, like, fully painted, imagined character in my mind. And so then seeing her as this, like, fragile young girl prior to knowing any of those things and only seeing him as their gracious benefactor and then seeing how that begins to crumble and how hard it is for her to believe what Sunita tells her and it's not until they see Lena and then and then even then this like jealousy that Lena's being favored until you know it's not until her dad shows her the house and is like oh that's where she is I mean that all of a sudden so you know you think how long did she believe these lies and of course she did of course she believed them because, again, that's part of the nature of how it all functions is that people believe the lies to be true or they have an idea that the reality is a bit different than the way that it seems, but not the extent of how corrupt it is. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, yeah, I thought that was really <sighs> yeah. impactful, this particular reading. Oh, I agree completely. What about you, Jen? What was something that worked for you? I think that... Again, Alvarez does such a brilliant job structuring it and shifting between the four points of view. And I think emphasizing the individualism of the sisters while also seeing them as a group, number one, elevates the emotional resonance of the story. But it also shows like you have this really vivid picture of Minerva. But I think we get that about each of the sisters. And I think we see how they are very different. But each of them has a strength that can make them a vital part of the movement. That it's not just that you don't need everyone to be a Minerva who is, you know, the first to really commit herself to this cause, that you also need, you know, a softer touch sometimes. And you need, yeah. And then I think related to that, 
you know, Day Day is the one who lives. And yet you see the role that her living and her being a repository for story and for memory. She in many ways feels guilty because for, you know, all the multitude of reasons that are explored through the book, she is not able to commit to the cause the way her sisters are. And yet her role as the only surviving sister is just as important in cementing what their death and lives meant as their sacrifices. And so I think just, I I didn't remember her character and I went in predisposed to dislike her because of the very little bit that I did remember. And I came to really, really love her and to really love the way she saw herself and her role and her obligation after her sister's death. So yeah, I think just Julia Alvarez establishing, you know, and the different sort of styles of each section, the way she had the epistolary section, I think allowing those different voices to flourish and to each fill in their own part of the narrative is such a mark of craftsmanship, but also, again, just you feel that connection to each of them so strongly and so differently. And we see the role they're all playing. I thought that was just brilliant. Yes, Mm. I, I completely agree. And I similarly had like, characters I remembered really liking or not liking, but felt differently about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you see how, you know, how three dimensional they each are. And it's interesting, you know, it's one of those books, they're, they're those books that you read differently, depending on the part of your life you're in. And so I think it's so great to have another one of those to add to that roster that just you know, we're, we're older now than we were when we read it before. And we have kids and we yeah, and I think all of those things make you appreciate different elements of each character. All right, well, we're going to move on to our favorite quote, not to our favorite quotes to sharing a quote, I was gonna say I cannot possibly pick a favorite. But (laughs) Ashley, what's one quote you want to share? I think that this is related to what you were just saying about how we interact with each of the characters differently with different readings. So this quote is from Patria. And she says, I wanted to start believing in my fellow Dominicans again. Once the goat was a bad memory in our past, that would be the real revolution we would have to fight, forgiving each other for all we had let come to pass. And I think, first of all, I felt very differently about Patria this time than I did reading it as a younger person. For sure, it will surprise no one (laughs) who knows my personality well that I would have resonated a lot with Minerva. Mm -hmm. As a younger person, and I still do. However, I think that I certainly have softened a lot over time and myself, like in just sort of having more balance in life, stuff like that. I mean, I feel like I'm a lot calmer of a person. And so (laughs) I had more space for Patria this time. And I felt like she was more indicative of the kind of participation I think you often see in this kind of situation where primarily she wants her children and her family to be safe. And that is very important to her. And not that that's not important to Minerva, but she, Minerva is more of a, you know, she has more of a, I feel like radical has a negative connotation. So I was trying to be. Uncompromising maybe. Yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. She has more of an uncompromising personality that she's willing, like with Leo, we see that she's willing to, even though she clearly loves him, she does not want to get distracted from the cause. Whereas Patria is much more of a, 
in turn, like she wants to be, you know, home life is what's important to her. I mean, initially she thinks she's going to be a nun and then she feels called to have a family, but that's still just this idea of a lot more of a domestic desire than the kind that Minerva has. And yet she is such an important and strong part of the revolution. And so I felt like I really appreciated that time this time. And I, it stood out to me, her character, the importance of her role and the role of people like her. And so, yeah, I just really appreciated that. Um, And then in the quote specifically, I felt like that's exactly it is like, it's not just the atrocities of one person. It is what that does to a community. It's what it does to a country. It's how hard it is to heal Mm -hmm. from that. And so I think that's exactly it. And that quote, you know, of her kind of seeing like, we're all complicit. Everyone is complicit in this because we have been part of it and we're going to have to find a way. And then as each individual has decided to turn against Trujillo and his regime, then they have to live with the fact that their neighbors have continued to partake in something that, you know, toward the end, there was no doubt that everyone knew that it was corrupt and horrific. And yet people were continuing to let it happen because they didn't want to disrupt their own lives. So having to live with that is really hard. What about you, Jen? What's your good? <laughs> I have three written down in the document and we're having a really hard time, but I think I'm going to go with, and we've talked about this a little bit, Ashley, you did in particular, I didn't know, she said again. What she meant was she didn't understand until that moment that they were really living, as Minerva liked to say, in a police state. And I think what stood out to me about that is, and you were talking about this, but that insidious nature of the way, number one, that a police state is established, but also, it you know, it's the whole frog in the pot of boiling water, right? That if it's a slow boil you don't realize that the frog's not going to jump out. I know we've all heard that a million times, but it it is true that it's, it's little actions one after another that build up until then someone names it. And then how long does it take for you to believe that name? And so I think that again, really resonated with me this time through, I think looking at the step-by-step building up of what is a police state it becomes clear how gradually it can happen until you realize you're in the midst of one. And yeah, that, that was just really powerful to me. And then the fact that, and you said this at the beginning as well, Ashley, that what you do in response to that can be these big moments, but it can also just be these little small things. And you're still living your life in the meantime, and you're still writing in your diary about the crushes that you have, and you're still you know, having to feed your kids every day and you're still having to live your life. And then also you're doing this (laughs) and you're committing yourself to fighting against it. Um, Yeah. So I really love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's exactly that is like day-to-day life does go on. It does go on. And I think I remember amidst the pandemic when we had been home for a long time, one of my friends said, I can only live at crisis level for so long. Mm -hmm. And he was just kind of saying, I have reached this moment where even though I am still so afraid for myself, for my family, for our country, for our world, I can no longer operate at that level of fear. Mm-hmm. And I think that we see that with the Mirabal sisters here, that even though they are in the, the 
you know, as far as they can be into the trenches of this, you know, by the time they're all getting arrested, I mean, that they couldn't be more involved. And yet still, it's about navigating personality dynamics and putting food on the table and taking care of the daily needs of your children. I mean, so I think that was another thing that I really love. And I think you really see that in the quote is just that, yeah, it's exactly that, that you all that stuff keeps going. Mm -hmm. And so I think we in some ways kind of romanticized historical events by thinking that they are nothing but catastrophe and not that not, I mean, romanticize is the wrong word, but just sort of like that we simplify them to thinking that every moment of every day is total catastrophe. And I think that for a lot of people in a lot of situations, that's not the case. And exactly as you said, Jen, you know, one, something, you know, (laughs) Rome was built one brick at a time, you know, (laughs) I mean, just that, you know, that these things happen, one step at a time, and that a lot of those steps are not made apparent to everyone. So then you're not realizing how things really are until they're really, really bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, we are going to move on to our pairings and some books that we think would be good read-alongs for this one. Ashley, what are you recommending? Well, I wanted to say first that this is not my pairing, but I, I thought so often of Celeste Ng's Our Missing Hearts. Oh, yeah. So if you did not read that with us at the beginning of the year, but are interested in something, I think that would be a phenomenal mm-hmm. pairing for this. It is an imagined future, but unfortunately feels eerily close to our present. But it does touch on all of these things of like, how is how does something become dystopian, what structural things are put in place. And then I think also that there's a similar, I felt that there was a similar feeling with the protagonist of the sense that sometimes you get wrapped up in a revolution, not always because you woke up and thought, I want to be brave. Yeah. And so instead, it's more about sometimes you just become part, you know, life circumstances make you part of part of something that you didn't necessarily want to be. And I think that was something I loved also about the book. <laughs> Sorry. We could talk about this a long time. But <laughs> we could. I, the last thing I wanted to say about the sisters is just that I think there's so much discussion about what it looks like to be brave and that each of them feels that the, her sisters are brave in a way that she is not. Mm-hmm. And I loved all of that. Like I thought that just that discovery of the fact that no one is is – just brave and <laughs> no one you know just wakes up every day and thinks i'm gonna change the world and that they admire each other for these traits but then we see that each of them including minerva you know that all of them but with mate especially i think you know in her because we get the diary we really just see that so often she is just kind of drug along yes. in this revolution kind of kicking and screaming but she continues to show up she does all you know she does really important work and you know even though a lot of her youth and very you know early adulthood is wrapped i mean again she was 25 i believe when when she died so i mean you think mm-hmm. that she was in the thick of this at a very early part of her life compared to her older sisters and yet you know, we see that still these things are impactful, even though maybe you're not always waking up thinking, I'm going to change the world, mm-hmm. you know? So that that really resonated for me. And again, Celestings, I think, is a lot like that, too. Yeah, but. that's a great pairing. Yeah. Um, so, it, sorry, I did not, that was not my official pairing. <laughs> I 
just wanted to sneak that one in there. But I wanted to share Mario Vargas Llosa's The Feast of the Goat. This one, um, Llosa, this is the only book of his that I have read, but he is a phenomenal writer. He has won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Um, I think he won it in 2010. And so he is an acclaimed author who has covered a lot of very important historical events, thoroughly researched. And this one, The Feast of the Goat, is historical fiction, but very closely researched. And so it does align a lot with the events that did occur at the end of Trujillo's reign. And I read this quite a while ago, so I am not going to get into the details. But I mean, I just wanted to share it because if you want to learn more about Trujillo and the his era and also and and what actually brought about his death this one gets into that and then what happens in the aftermath which is also really nasty and there's a lot of upheaval i mean exactly what patria kind of alludes to in that quote that i read there is a tremendous amount of upheaval i mean one of the things that was eye opening to me at this point also when i first read this was just the us involvement in a lot of I mean, it feels embarrassing to me now to admit how little I knew Mm -hmm. about how involved the U.S. has been in all of the things that have happened in Central and South America. So I think I knew that there had been some dictators who were really problematic, but I had no idea how often those were either upheld by or pushed against from the U.S. and how much that affected what happened in the different countries. So that was all news to me in my early, like in college and in my early adulthood, and was shocking to me. I mean, it goes back to exactly what we talked about, about you think you know something, and then you see the underbelly, and you think, how could I have not known? So anyway, this one is just, it was a phenomenal read, and I found it deeply impactful and would definitely recommend it. On its own right, but also if you're wanting to know more about Trujillo and read this one and thought, oh, I want to learn more, it's great for that. Mm -hmm. So again, that is Mario Vargas Llosa, and the book is The Feast of the Goat. Yeah, that was such a great book. Oh my gosh. What about you, Jen? What's your pairing? So I'm pairing this one with Daniel Jose Older's The Book of Lost Saints. The subtitle is A Cuban-American Family Saga of Love, Betrayal, and Revolution. And... Older is someone who I had come to know through his fantasy work and some of his YA books. And I was really intrigued. I actually read this one when it was an ARC, when it was an ARC. It really blew me away when I was rereading In the Time of the Butterflies. Parts of it, I I would remember something and realize I was remembering passages from the Book of Lost Saints. So there are definitely a lot of connections. So the premise is... There's a man named Ramon who is living in New Jersey in modern day, and he starts being haunted by his aunt Marisol, who disappeared during the Cuban Revolution. And she had been imprisoned under Batista's reign, and her family never really knew what happened to her. And Ramon does not really know the story of what his family went through in Cuba what caused them to immigrate, how they immigrated. And she is basically haunting him to get him to investigate his own history, his own family history. And with older, so you see there the elements of fantasy, the elements of magical realism. There's always humor in older's books. And yet, of course, this is an an incredibly 
important, serious topic. And Marisol is one of several. I can't remember if she only has sisters, but I remember the relationships with her sisters is one of the things that connected that book to this one for me. And you see the way that within the family, there are conflicts about how they should handle what the the situation that they're living in and what they're going through. And so even though it's not the same in that, you know, Alvarez gives us the perspectives of multiple sisters, we still get that sense of Within a family, there are going to be very different opinions. And I really love the book. It made me want to go back and read that one. So it's been a few years. So some of my memories are fuzzy. But again, as I was reading Alvarez's book, I would just have almost these flashbacks to some of those scenes. So I definitely think it would be worth reading something set elsewhere and yet dealing with a lot of the same themes as in the time of the butterflies. So again, that is Daniel Jose Older's The Book of Lost Saints. That was really, it was great. Yeah, I definitely want to read that, John. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, another thing I know painfully yeah. little about and yeah. Same. It's, it's always like, of course, books are amazing to do that. And yet it is always embarrassing when you realize there are these parts of the world. I recently read a story about Jamaica and the history, and you were talking about the U.S. involvement, and yeah, the U.S. involvement there was horrifying. So I, I think there are just so many, so many parts of the world that I know shamefully little about. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, like with Trujillo, I mean, there, that is kind of referenced in the book, but because of Castro and the fear of communism, mm-hmm. then. And I mean, which all has to do with U.S. and Russia. I mean, you know, it doesn't even it doesn't even have anything to do with these countries. And yet, because of those ideological stances, they, you know, Trujillo potentially would have been brought down much earlier if there had been more global outrage. But countries like the U.S. were letting it ride Mm -hmm. because they didn't want what was happening in Cuba. So then, which again has I mean has nothing to do with protection of life or, you know, any of the like human rights stuff, it all has to do with like politics, basically. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I think discovering that is painful, but important, because I think it helps us be more informed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, well, (laughs) I always feel like there's no easy transition out of a deep discussion like this one. So I'll just say we're now going to move on to our bookish hearts, which feels... (laughs) Yeah, kind of reductive Odd. at this point. But um, Ashley, how many bookish hearts would you give this book? <laughs> I completely agree. Sometimes it's hard to segue. Uh, definitely five bookish hearts. Yeah, yeah. I give it all the hearts. Yeah, very impact. One one of the most impactful books I've read. Mm-hmm. So there we go. Yeah, same five hearts all the way. All right. Well, we are going to end with our give me one segment, and today we're each going to give one book club tip. So Ashley, what is one tip you have for book clubs? Well, the most success I've had with book club life has been with Jen in real life. And so I actually am sadly not nearly as involved in in in-person book clubs as I should be, um, perhaps. But anyway, here in Greenville, the local library has really great books that they read and discuss. So it's been challenging as we're getting settled here to like make it fit in. But I have read along. For example, I read Dean Atta's The Black Flamingo 
which I had been wanting to read for a long time. And then, you know, because they chose that one, I went ahead and read it. And then I did miss the in-person discussion. I had some a conflict that evening, but it was nice to read along. Mm-hmm. And then they've had some other reads that I want to plug into. So I think if you're looking for a book club to join in, that a lot of local libraries have something going on. So that is a nice place to start if you are not sure how to get plugged into one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you, Jen? So I was going to talk about how my In Real Life Book Club chooses books. And I will say I joined this one after it had been well established for several years. So this is not my method. But basically, we choose four months at a time. And near the end of that four-month period, one of our members sends out an email and asks everyone to nominate three to four books. She puts together a big list. We all vote. And then it's by that sort of voting system. And the thing I like about it, and I'm not trashing anybody's way of doing book clubs, but I know some will have like one person who picks the book for everyone. And, and I've been part of book clubs there. I do feel like then there's a sense of responsibility that you have for picking a great book. And if people don't like it, <laughs> I know defensiveness could be a problem. And so the nice thing about this is you chose the book together it, it doesn't mean we always look the books. And it is interesting to see. Sometimes I can pick out like which of our members nominated which books because we all have different styles. But yeah, I, I really like that method. And it's also nice to have the four books at a time because then you can kind of work ahead. And if you want to do things through the library, that gives you time to put things on hold, um, which works really well as well. So yeah, that's just one method that works really well for our In Real Life Book Club. I love that. Great yeah. tip. Yeah. So thank you so much for listening. We would love to know what you think of In the Time of the Butterflies. And if you have any books that you would recommend as pairings, we'd love to hear about that. And if you have any book club tips, it'd be great to hear. Thanks so much for listening. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at UnabridgedPod or on the web at UnabridgedPod.com for ways to support us. To get more involved, you can sign up for our newsletter, join a buddy read, or become an ambassador. Thanks for listening to Unabridged.